Good morning. I just want to echo Pete's words and say what an amazing, an amazing word that we have just heard and gather around and just how inadequate I feel and am uh, to unpack it with us. I know of no greater message in the universe. It is staggering and I trust that we will see something of that together. Uh, So let me pray before we go any further. Father, this is truly an amazing word from heaven. And so we need your help, please, to appreciate that, even just adequately. And we ask that by this word, you might transform our minds, you might cause our hearts to beat more and more for you. And that our lives, as we head out from here, would more and more be like Christ and live for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. There are some of those moments in history that are so significant that when you first see them or hear of them, you can remember exactly where you were, the conditions of them. One of them for me was February the 13th, 2008. It was 9.30 in the morning. I was in a small holiday unit in Caloundra. I remember what the weather was like, it was grey outside, but I was inside and my eyes were fixed on this little TV as the Prime Minister of the day, Kevin Rudd, stood up in the Federal Parliament and on behalf of the government said sorry to Australia's First Nations people. I'm sure many of you remember that day, that moment as well. It was a massively significant moment in our country's history and a step towards reconciliation. Clearly, there are many more steps to be taken, and we live in hope of progress, and how good to see the team heading out into those communities. But reconciliation, it is a beautiful thing. The, the, The mending, the healing, the bringing back together of what is precious but was smashed, but the healing of it between people groups, between family members, between friends. Reconciliation is the beginning of a new future together. Well, there's another, even shorter speech in history, a lot further back than the one that I've just recounted, also about reconciliation, but so significant that the witnesses, again, took note of the weather, And word for word, this short speech, it reads like this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are both terrifying and wonderful words of a dying man. Words that give voice to something monumental that God was doing in that moment, in the darkness, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, where God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. There is no bigger moment in the universe. Reconciliation with 
God, that's where this passage takes us this morning. That's where we're going to focus and dine out. Where we're going to push into our deepest need and the most wonderful gift. Our deepest. There is no deeper need and there is no more wonderful gift than the reconciliation that comes from God. I'm going to take us through it in three parts. Our need, the basis and the call of reconciliation with God. Okay, let's jump into it. Make sure you've got your Bibles there. But firstly, point one, the need for reconciliation. Reconciliation implies a problem. You don't need reconciliation when everything is sweet. Reconciliation implies a dislocation or a severing of something that is precious. And for all the problems that we might have not too far from our minds this morning, issues with family, with the kids, with work, with health, these are real problems and some of them I know for you are so deep, but they are not our greatest problem. The Bible, over and over again as we hold it up, makes so clear that our greatest problem is God. Our greatest problem is God. That's not at all obvious to most people. It's not on the six o'clock news. You won't hear it anywhere else. And yet, it is all of humanity's greatest problem, God. How can that be? People ask, what are you talking about? God is my greatest problem. Well, because of our rebellion towards him. What rebellion? As I talk to people, what are you talking about? And here's the thing. Ignorance of our problem with God is evidence of our great problem with God. The fact that we live in ignorance, actually ignoring, pushing, suppressing, that there is any problem, is itself evidence of our great problem. We're like the stubborn man before the days of Google Maps who's driving around and his wife, Brian and I are young enough to, to have this in our experience. No, no, you need to go this way. No, no, I got it, I got it. No, you need to go this way. And she's like, all right. Sure enough, lost. If you had Google Maps, if you had a bird's eye view, you would see just how lost you are. But down on the ground, stubbornly, I've got this. What problem? The thing about the Bible is when we come to it, it provides the only vantage point high enough to actually look down on ourselves and see just how lost we are in life. Though down at ground level, we we, we think we're fine. And it doesn't take long to actually work out what the great problem is. You just need to turn open to the first few pages where we find that this world is not the product of random chance, but rather the creation of a personal and purposeful God. And not some little side project that he made and got bored with and moved on, but actually the context for him to dwell with his image bearers. He made a home. He made a place to actually share himself with creation, with men and women made in his image. Men and women made to to know God, to walk with God, to enjoy God, to glorify God, to obey God, to be consumed with every single piece of their life with God. And it ought to be at this point that we go, 
ah, we have a problem. Who has lived their life even close to being consumed with God at every single point of our life? The one who has created us, the one who sustains us, the one who has given us every good gift. We have fallen so short of living for him that our nature is to actually chase after anything but him. And chapter 5 verse 15, if you flip it around, if you reverse it, actually explains how we've lived. That we've not lived for him who made us, but rather lived for ourselves. I find one of the most vivid and confronting parts of the Bible being the little book of Hosea, back in the Old Testament, some eight centuries before the time of Jesus. A real man who God brought a word to. And he said, go and marry Goma, this woman named Goma. Now, the thing about Goma is that she's described as a sexually immoral woman, most literally a whore. God says, hey, Hosea, go marry a whore. Now, it's the Bible where we find God has created marriage. He's designed it to, to be the context of the most intimate human relationship on planet earth between a man and a woman to, to know intimacy and, and faithfulness and which is why we feel so much pain when it goes wrong. But God tells Hosea to go and marry a whore. So he does. He marries her. He takes her to be his wife and inevitably and quickly she goes after other men. The betrayal and I'm sorry that it touches on the nerve for too many of us, that the betrayal is immense. What is precious is smashed into a million pieces. Why does God tell Hosea to go and marry this woman? Because God is giving the people of the day and then all readers of the Bible since a living, breathing, walking, talking illustration of what God's people, Israel, are like with their God. And by extension, all of us, all of humanity, how we have treated God, we are like the whore who have gone out and given ourselves to many lovers, given our love to any and every place where it ought not have gone. How does a spouse who's been treated like this respond? Surely there is no one in their right mind saying, just, just get over it. What's the big deal? Aren't you a person of love? No, we recognise that there is great grief. And more, there is anger. Yeah? Righteous anger. Our greatest problem is God in light of how we have lived towards him. His righteous anger toward us because of our unfaithfulness. Anger that means there is nothing that is within our power that we can do anything to appease it. Nothing. We've smashed our relationship with the God for whom we were made forever. The mirror the Bible becomes for us as we hold it up and honestly listen to what it's saying, it is like no other. 
It is confronting. It is sobering. It is humbling. Our greatest problem is God in light of our rebellion. But it's with this sobering background in mind that we remember that short speech from a cross, Jesus' forsaken cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer to that question is found in our passage that we're in this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. Have a look at it there. The answer to that question is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We have a desperate need for reconciliation with God until we see that, accept that, embrace that, everything else is useless. But having seen our need, let us come to the basis for this reconciliation with God. Because the only way that true reconciliation can be achieved is the way of forgiveness. And so we come to the second point, the basis of reconciliation. Forgiveness is the only way that a relationship can be reconciled. And forgiveness, of course, means not holding on to the offence that has been committed against the person. That's exactly what verse 19 says God is doing, the one who has been sinned against by the guilty us. He is not counting people's sins against them. Do you remember those um, businesses called uh, video stores? Remember those buildings that you had to actually get in your car on a Saturday afternoon and drive to and and walk along the walls where they had these things called VHS one day and then discs and and you had to look through and what are we going to watch tonight and then you'd grab the DVD, you'd take it up to the counter, you would rent it, you'd take it home, you'd watch it the next day, you'd forget to take it back. Yeah? Three, four, five, seven, ten weeks later, you, you take it back, you return it You hire the next movie, look, look, look. You take it up to the counter and the 14-year-old would go, "Um, you got six bucks owing in late fees. Do do you want to pay any of that? You're like, no. (laughs) All right, and you'd hire the DVD and off you'd go and you'd rent it. You wouldn't return it for another three weeks until eventually when you want to hire the movie, they go, no, we're not giving you this movie until you clear your debt. And so what would many people do? All right, I'll go to the video shop down the road. start a new debt with them, rack it up with them. I had a a mate in growth group for years who, poor guy, ran Blockbuster, owned a Blockbuster store. And he would tell me this would happen all the time. People would rack up a debt, then they would keep the DVDs, they wouldn't come back to him, he'd lost the relationship. And so he said from time to time he'd actually put up a sign in the shop front, big sign, that said, all debts cancelled come back and he said people would kind of sheepishly come back with their DVDs and no more late fee all gone forgiveness for my mate could only be achieved by him actually absorbing the cost it didn't just float away and disappear some he had to he had to wear it and own it and by absorbing that cost on himself he was able to reconcile the relationship with the customer. Verse 19, 
God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. It is God putting up a massive sign that says, all debts cancelled. Now we need to watch, guard against a misunderstanding here. It's not just because God is love and so just lovingly ignores sin and says, come back. No, no, as it's well been said, the opposite of love isn't hate, but indifference. Indifference, to be aloof, means you actually place no value on the person or the thing that you're just dismissing. You know, when my kids come to me, as they do, and can you check my homework, Daddy? And the older they get, the more complicated it's getting. And if I just go, skim, 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 yeah, it's sweet, it's good. That's not love. That's not honouring their dignity, their worth, their work. That's not what God is doing in not counting our sins against us. It's verse 21 that takes us to the heart of how God cannot count people's sins without leaving it uncounted. Have a look there. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wasn't it great to have that sung to us by the kids last week? In fact, I heard of someone who then went down to Vivid in Sydney that night, got on the train late at night, and as they got on the train, they heard this little voice, God made him. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Singing the most wonderful message on public transport. Let me pull this verse apart in three parts, which explains how God cannot count sin without leaving sin uncounted for. Number one, God initiates. God made him who had no sin. Nowhere in the Bible do we reconcile God. Nowhere. It's one of the defining and distinct features of Christianity that sets it against all the other religions and spiritual worldviews, which basically, when you boil them down, are what you, the guilty party, recognising there is guilt, need to do to try and appease, try and make up for, try and hopefully be accepted by God or the gods. Notice it is God who takes the initiative. Hosea, the prophet who married the whore, off she went. God says to him, Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, pursue her. Hosea is a picture of your God. Staggering that though deeply wronged by sinners, he initiates the work to reconcile. Have you been hurt? Have you been deeply hurt? I know some of us have. The thought of of us pursuing reconciliation, the thought is almost too much, but the God of the universe, he takes the initiative. Second part, he makes sinless Jesus sin. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. At a moment in history, 
enters into his creation, fully human and fully God, fully human and so tempted in every way like you and I are, yet never like us sinned, was tempted in all the, all the worldly ways to view money and power and popularity and sex and loneliness and fame. And he faced all those temptations and at every point obeyed the will of his Father. And so every one of his attitudes, actions and words was a sinless act of worship to God, pleasing to God. Jesus was the only human ever to have lived who did not need reconciling to God. The only one who did not need reconciling. Yet, on the cross, God made Jesus sin. Which is to say, he substituted the guilty sinner with his sinless son. Jesus willingly and out of love substituted himself, though without sin, to be sin. Two key little words there. To be sin for us. For us. And from here I want you to put your name in the us. For Jez. He became sin. And we hear the horror of what that meant in his cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the physical darkness that is recorded by the eyewitnesses in the gospel is is giving us a sense of what is going on in the spiritual realm as the wrath of God for the evil of the world is poured out on his son Jesus. Though Jesus was not a sinner on the cross, he trades place and he is counted as one. So that in Jesus, the just punishment of the just judge of the universe who cannot excuse sin can justly punish it fully and finally and it destroys Jesus. So that in some mysterious way, the eternal Son of God cries out of his God-forsakenness. Why? For us. For you. That you might be reconciled. There's the second part, Jesus becoming a substitute for us. Here's the third part. Notice the next two little words. These are so important. So that, so that, there is a purpose to the death of Jesus. It is not just some sad ending to a promising Messiah. His death, though the result of very real evil actions at the hands of men, and literally male men, wicked acts, that they are responsible for, yet God sovereignly working them so that, for a purpose, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about the nature of reconciliation. This is where it goes beyond mere forgiveness. See, it's possible to forgive and yet not reconcile. And tragically, though, 
Though there's progress, as we are able to forgive each other and not reconcile, there is something wonderful and we're called to that in the gospel. Though everything in us longs for reconciliation, doesn't it? That, that mending. Well, whilst it might not always be possible amongst ourselves, it's exactly what God has given. Reconciliation isn't just a truce. It isn't just putting our weapons down and agreeing to a ceasefire. And it's not just the cancelling of a debt, though it is. It's the mending of what is precious. The death of Jesus doesn't just wipe our sin slate clean, though he was made sin for us and the punishment fell on him. It doesn't just wipe it clean, leaving us as if we're just neutral to God. Okay, no more his enemies, but just mere acquaintances. No, no, the cross of Christ means that we now have the grounds for intimate relationship with the God of the universe that we know as Father. Father. Friends, in the gospel, God is not just tolerating you. I know many of you just try and tolerate yourselves. That's not how God views you. He's not just tolerating you. He loves you with a love that is deeper than you could ever imagine. As you look to these verses and what is happening, you get a sense of it. This reconciliation brings us into the relationship for which we were made. I know we don't experience it perfectly. And we go up and down and we fail in it. But the wonder of the intimacy of relationship with God... There's two more little important words that clarify where this righteousness is found, where the grounds are that we can have this reconciled, intimate relationship. Lots of two little important words in this passage. So that, there's the purpose, in him, in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus wasn't just saving you at the cross, though he was. But at every single moment of his life, as he was tempted to, to turn away from the Father, to sin, to turn in on himself, and did at every single point where he didn't lust, where he didn't succumb to greed and gluttony, where he didn't lie, at every single point, Jesus was saving you. Because this, in theological terms, is called his active obedience. Fulfilling God's demands, requirements for for righteous relationship with him. Jesus fulfilled it at every point. That, his whole life and the righteousness that is won by it, is counted as yours. It's not yours, it's not mine. Just like the sin wasn't Jesus's, but it was counted as him. He died under it. That righteousness is counted as mine. It is by being in Christ, which is the only grounds for this relationship. How do you get in Christ? By faith. By faith. It is Christ who saves you. It's Christ who does the saving work. Faith just connects you to the one who saves Faith is like a big, thick straw that slurps up the goodness of a smoothie. Yeah, all the thick banana bits and mango bits. 
It's not the straw that is feeding you. It's the smoothie. But you need the straw. Faith isn't saving you. It's Christ, who he is, what he's done. But faith is what allows you to drink of him, to look to him for pardon, for righteousness. This is nothing of your own and all of Christ, which is the glory of the Bible's message. The Bible's message isn't this, that God loves you as you are. It's not that. God does not love you as you are. God loves you for who you are in Christ. God loves you in spite of who you are in Christ. Because of his perfect son, his life on your behalf. So let me move from the basis of how we can have reconciliation with God to now the third and final point, the call of reconciliation. The comfort of the Christian message is that God took the initiative. It doesn't hang on us. If it did, we are eternally lost. God takes the initiative to reconcile the world to himself in the life and death of Christ. But God's saving initiative, his work in Christ, requires your response. It demands a response. Have a look at the language there, verse 19, that Paul uses. He said, God has committed to him the message of reconciliation We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God appeals. Paul goes on, we implore you. Chapter 6, verse 1, we urge you. Notice that the work of God in Christ is not this automatic cover-all for every sinner. Why else, how else do you make sense of the appealing language, the imploring language, the urging language, the be reconciled? You must make a response. And so let me ask all of you, do you know God? I mean, really know him, not know about him, not know a history of being a child or a nana. Do you know intimate relationship with your God. In a group this size, I suspect there are some of you who don't. Well, as a reconciled sinner myself, can I be so bold as to take Paul's words on my lips, which are Christ's words, which are God's words to you. As one of Christ's ambassadors, As though God were making his appeal through me, I implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do not go another day, another week, another month out of relationship with your God. Don't. I implore you, I appeal to you. Why would you? when you see what your God has done for you, as, as he appeals to you, as he is Hosea who pursues the way, why would you not come back? And so I appeal to you, if that is you today, if you do not know God, be reconciled to him. 
Look to his son. Put your trust in him. Ask God to come and make you a new creation. Ask God to come and grow in you this relationship that is reconciled. To the rest of us, and I take it for the majority of us who have at some point, maybe even decades ago, put our faith in Christ to enjoy a reconciled relationship from then on. Notice who Paul is calling to be reconciled. Who is it? Well, the letter begins, chapter 1, verse 2, or 1, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people, his saints. He calls church-going Christians, holy people, to be reconciled to God. Wow, why? Well, I take it that, as in most groups, it's a mixed group. And so as we work through the letter, and particularly uh, next time we come back to it, we'll see that Paul uh, suspects that there are some not in Christ. As I suspect amongst us, there are some who need to come into relationship with God through Christ, to confess their sins, to repent, to start that journey. But many of them have. So why does he call them to be reconciled? Well, I think we get a hint there. Chapter 6, verse 1. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. It's possible to receive God's grace in vain. God's grace here is very shorthand for all of this wonderful news that we've just been unpacking. The news of what God has done to reconcile us through Christ. It's possible, though, to receive that grace, that message, that relationship even, in some sense, to receive it in vain. How could you receive God's grace in vain? Well, at least two ways. Let's finish with these. Making a start in the Christian life, walking with God in relationship, and yet drifting, usually slowly, bit by bit by bit, but so that one day you go, no, it's over, no more. Is God still your first priority? Can you with all integrity say, all I have is Christ. If I were to lose everything, Christ, you would be enough. We sing songs like that every week. Can you sing them with integrity? Is verse 15 still true for you? That he died for all, that all who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus who died for them and was raised again. Are you getting up daily, weekly? Are you, are you having moments where you are pausing to reflect on, am I living for you, Jesus? Or is it possible that you've slipped into paying him lip service? You sing the songs, you go through the motions, you say the the creeds in the kind of ways that we do. But actually, he is not your treasure. You are not living for him. You're actually giving yourself more and more to other loves. And we'll come back to this more next week. Well, if that's you, hear the same word. 
Be reconciled to God. Come back close to your God. Often it will mean there are sins that we've been flirting with, you know, little ones. We think, well, we think they're little. Repent of them. Often in this distance, there there's, can be a massive, flagrant, secret sin. You're living a lie. Stop it. Repent. Be reconciled to God. There is mercy. There is grace. The second way that you can receive God's grace in vain is to live at odds with God's purposes. That's what I take it is particularly on view here with the Corinthians who had made a start in their walk with the Lord. Paul had brought them the gospel, but they imagined that the gospel was victorious in the sense that they, right here, right now, would rise above anything ordinary. And that would be this extraordinary kind of floating spiritual life, conquering weakness, conquering suffering. But Paul says, no, 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 this is the day of salvation. And salvation is by the way of the cross, the way of weakness and suffering. So friends, this is not the day for you to build your best life now. When the, word, when, when the line is used by Christians, the best is yet to come, if they are meaning in the new creation, when Jesus returns, amen. But tragically, so often they're not. It's Corinthian, as though we can conquer and we can rise. This is not your best life. To live as though it were is going to be frustrating, it's going to be futile, but more importantly, it's going to be living at odds with God's purposes. What is God's purpose right now? Well, it's the day of salvation. It's to bend every effort to see as many men, women and children come back into reconciled relationship with their maker. And so for all of your priorities, all of your responsibilities, the greatest is the work of salvation. Do not grow weary of giving yourself to that work. Individually in what you do, but corporately together as a ministry. Friends, we've just had another eight people this week, eight adults at Explaining Christianity, profess faith in Christ. Another bunch more who want to keep looking into the things with Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. That ought not to surprise us. We don't want to presume upon God. But this is exactly what he's on about right now. What are you on about? He's giving yourself as best as you're able to the work of the gospel to see more and more people reconcile. Do you need to be reconciled with God's purposes? And finally, let me finish with this. The message of reconciliation is a balm to continually apply to everything that is bruised, broken and banged up in our life. I know there is so much. Because it is true, it is true, friends, that you can be losing everything. And yet, it is well with your soul. That cannot be taken from you. Reconciled to a God who loved you and gave himself for you. And so we gather another week where we are another week closer to when the trump shall resound.
and the Lord shall descend. And our reconciled relationship with God will be experienced by sight and not by faith. When every tear will be wiped away. And the only thing that will matter on that day is whether you are reconciled to God in Christ. Everything else will be a distant memory. Friends, be reconciled to God. Let me pray. Father God, what amazing love, what staggering news that you have come for us. You have done what we can't even imagine doing to our enemies. And so we praise you, we thank you, we are humbled. And I want to ask on behalf of those who have not yet been reconciled that you would work that miracle, that you would begin that relationship, that new creation. For those of us that are, that you might keep us close, that you would keep us reconciled, that you would keep us on about what you are and that you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.